Since early in 2021, we have been sharing the science behind today's most important health topics. And I'm excited about today's topic because it's very timely. So now how many of you made your New Year's resolution and took the opportunity for the season to set that goal of a new year, new you? I know I did. But years ago, I stopped making resolutions because I would make this goal to get in shape and I'd lose X amount of pounds. And by the end of January, here we are in February, typically these things slip. And so have you considered that it may not be your fault that you just can't lose weight? So today I'm joined with Dr. Tammy Kendall, who will walk us through the growing signs behind weight loss and how bariatric surgery may be key to many struggling to lose weight. So Dr. Tammy Kendall is an associate professor at the Medical College of Wisconsin and a bariatric surgeon at Frederick Hospital. So welcome, Dr. Kendall. Thank you so much for having me today. It's really my pleasure to talk about this topic. It, it is very timely. Um, you know, New Year's resolutions often come and go, and we're left with uh, how do we really address our, our chronic health needs? Mm -hmm. And this is one of my favorite topics to talk about from a scientific perspective, so I think it should be good. Yes. Well, thank you for being here. And for those of you out there on the interwebs, we will be covering a great list of questions regarding why it's so difficult to lose weight and why it may not be your fault on why you can't lose weight. And we encourage you all to type in your questions in the chat. And I promise you by the end of this, we will definitely get to your questions. So let's get started. Okay. So Dr. Kendall, there's a famous study conducted, I think, by the National Institute of Health, where they follow the contestants from a season of The Biggest Loser for six years to see how they manage their weight after the show, in which they lost hundreds of pounds. Can you tell us about that study and why and what it really tells us about weight loss? Sure. Um, I was a a big fan of The Biggest Loser um, as a as a weight loss surgeon and someone that. Um, you know, spends day in and day out um, trying to help patients lose a significant amount of weight and get healthy. Um, so very intrigued by this study. So there have been a couple of studies conducted by this group um, that was um, funded by the NIH, and they've all kind of centered on the theme of a term called metabolic adaptation. So I think to kind of understand this study, we have to take a step back and really think about body weight regulation. And it falls into two very simplified buckets of calories in and calories out. Okay. And, um, and, what, and what regulates our calories in and calories out? So when we try a diet, usually we are forcibly trying to change our calories in and potentially try to modulate with activity some extra calories out. Now, our body, you know, food intake, um, body fat stores are a essential survival need. And so there are really um, multiple different mechanisms to control food intake through signals. And those signals are both in our brain and our periphery that give us signals for hunger, give us signals for satiety or what we consider fullness after a meal. And then our body also regulates the burn, the, the out part, the output. Um, and it, it does that through our metabolic rate and how that's controlled by hormones and medical conditions and medications. 
So in the Biggest Loser study, they were really interested in looking at that metabolic rate and how patients responded to a very dramatic weight loss. I think the show was like four months. Mm -hmm. um, what happened to their metabolic rate and their, their rate of weight stability or weight regain after surgery? So after um, the Biggest Loser. They um, use a number of different types of measurements. Um, some of them uh, calculated based off of formulas of how do we burn calories. Um, uh, some of them estimating what um, calorie burn we might get from food. And, um, and they did that at six years after The Biggest Loser. And they had pretty good follow-up. And what they found is that obviously for patients to lose that amount of weight, they had a significant reduction in calories, okay? And the body compensates, this is the term metabolic adaptation, to that weight loss, to the loss of fat stores, right? So we've lost our reserves by lowering our metabolic rate. Now there is some expected amount of lowering of our metabolic rate when our body weighs less, okay? So someone who is 100 pounds versus 200 pounds versus 300 pounds, the patient who weighs more is going to have a higher metabolic rate. So when you lose weight, you expect to lose some of your metabolic rate, but the body compensates beyond that. Okay. And for many of these individuals, they had a significant metabolic adaptation to the point where even still six years later, despite many people having weight regain, they have not resumed a normal expected metabolic rate. They're still in that period of metabolic adaptation. So I, I think this study was, it really shined light on the mm -hmm. fact that um, significant weight loss is not necessarily driven by just cerebral cortex by willpower. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of different signals at play and we can't necessarily control our own metabolic rate, right? right. And so um, the guiding principles that I took away as a clinician from this study are that what gets you there in a diet is what keeps you there. And I think that's a little bit um, counter to how many people approach a dieting attempt, right? If we think about our New Year's resolution, okay, I'm going to reduce my calories to 1200 kilocalories per day to try yeah. to get down to whatever your goal is, or I'm going to eat this way to try to get down to my goal and then have a different way of living once you meet that goal. Right. And this study shows you can't do that. It's if you've gotten down to that weight loss or, or whatever your target goal weight is on a 1200 kilocalorie diet, you're probably going to have to maintain that. Oh. And I think that's a huge shift in the way that we think about dieting because it's the sustainability of the lifestyle habit and those changes that are most important. Well, you know, some people um, that I know that are really, really slim, not to say that their slimness is a degree of them e eating healthy, but they, they say it's genetic. So what do our genes have to do with our ability to lose weight? Yeah, um, a lot, a lot. So based on, um, you know, what study you want to pull, you know, anywhere from like 30 to 70% of our body weight, we could say is a genetic predisposition. So there are some really famous um, twin studies that were done decades ago, where 
twins um, who were separated in a, like a, a foster care system, adopted into different families. And they track very, very similarly in terms of their weight gain, uh, tendency to gain weight or tendency to maintain a lower body weight, more so than the environment and the family that they've been brought up with. So um, genetics, again, not something we can necessarily change, right? Like, but it takes a little bit of that yeah, I can blame my mom for this problem. Um, and it's not necessarily I'm doing something wrong. So so genetics are a part of a very complex um, body weight regulation. Got it. So uh, I think this is interesting, this concept of the biggest loser. I, I, I was fascinated by the show, the before pictures, then after. But on the biggest loser, it's a TV show. It's a fixed environment. So I'm wondering what impact does the environment around you have in your ability to lose weight? Yeah, well, you're right. The biggest loser is a right. That's an ideal, an ideal scenario <laughs> setting, right? You've got physical trainers and dietitians, and they're looking at all of your medical problems. Um, but I think that's that's part of the difficulty with sustainability. So there, there was a a second study that has come out looking at the the biggest loser participants um, because one of the parts that's very challenging, I think, to model outside of the ranch is the level of activity that these individuals undertook, right? They were doing two, three, four hours a day of physical activity. But if you come home and you're, you have a, uh, you know, a desk job or yeah. you're a night worker mm -hmm. um, and, or you're a, you know, a mom raising four children, um, how do you, how do you maintain that? And so I think from a, physical activity, the, the environment is exceptionally important. And then kind of getting back to what do we have available to us in terms of types of food, um, stress, mm -hmm. uh, sleep patterns, um, all affect our ability to maintain a specific lifestyle or even undertake a specific lifestyle. So the second study they looked at with The Biggest Loser, what they found is that the individuals who were able to maintain high levels of physical activity that more matched what they did during the actual show had um, the, the best maintained weight loss. So again, that kind of what you do to get there is what you have to do to keep you there. Okay. So in the example of, um, we talked about genes and like 30 to 40% of the people who are, who are slim, it's likely because of their genetics. I'm wondering, are there certain populations more susceptible to obesity and the health risks that come from being overweight than others? Yeah, yeah, it's um, absolutely. And um, there's probably many different populations, but I think the one that I'd like to speak to is um, our socioeconomic populations. Okay, so it's a little bit different than genetic populations. <clears throat> but uh, individuals who are growing up in areas where they have high community stress, low socioeconomic status, um, not a lot of access to um, food resources and nutrition education are certainly more at risk for gaining weight and having more significant medical complications associated with being overweight. Mm -hmm. um, 
and there, you know, I think it's, it's complex, whether that's the environment, the types of foods that they're eating, the amount of stress that they have in the home environment, um, all of those things probably play a role in the risk for obesity, but, but that is one population that is definitely um, at risk for increased body weight. Wow. So you are a surgeon and I'm going to come back to that um, socioeconomic status as being a real barrier to health. And, and as a public health ambassador, what I've come to learn is that obesity is a, is a gateway for other chronic illnesses, like diabetes, hypertension, cardiovascular disease, that number of lower income populations really struggle with and unfortunately die from. And so first let's, let's answer the question, bariatric surgeon, right? What is bariatric surgery and are there multiple types? Yeah. So um, bariatric surgery, surgical weight loss. And yes, there are multiple different types. I'm going to, if I could just share with you mm -hmm. um, the two most common types of procedures that we perform. Um, let me just, I think you can see this here. So um, a sleeve gastrectomy is the most common bariatric procedure. And um, what we do in a sleeve gastrectomy is we remove about 75% of the stomach. So this is a, a stomach surgery. Mm -hmm. And the second most common procedure is a gastric bypass. So a gastric bypass is a little bit more involved. It's been around for decades um, where we make a, this is the small stomach pouch that has been separated from mm -hmm. the rest of your stomach. And then the intestine is divided and brought forward. So we're also bypassing um, the first part of the, um, the small intestine. Mm -hmm. Now, when we think about how these surgeries work, um, they really alter some of those signals and those buckets that I was talking about in terms of food intake, particularly related to the amount of food it takes to feel full and sometimes, for instance, with this sleeve, we also see a reduction in some of the hunger hormones. So who would be ideal candidates for the, the sleeve versus the bypass? Yeah, for, for any bariatric surgery, um, we, we use BMI. Uh, and BMI is a not perfect metric of um, body weight and, and body composition, but it is the one that we use. And the guidelines actually recently changed where um, in 2022, we're now recommending that you could be considered a candidate for bariatric surgery if your body mass index is 30 to 35, if you have a obesity associated medical condition, and you name just a few of those. So type two diabetes, obstructive sleep, apnea, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And then if your body mass index is 35 or higher, um, then there's a cardiovascular risk reduction, even if you haven't developed one of those medical problems yet, where we feel that the risk of surgery is less than long-term untreated obesity. So that's, that's all comers in terms of thinking about bariatric surgery. Now, when we think about these two procedures, um, there's a lot that goes into that decision-making. Sometimes um, we look at a patient's medical conditions and try to best fit that surgery with treating a specific medical condition. So there are some patients who have type 2 diabetes that may be better served with a gastric bypass than a sleeve gastrectomy in terms of their best possible chance of getting their A1C under control. 
There may be other patients that have um, severe reflux disease where a gastric bypass um, is, is probably the better operation. There are other patients maybe who are on our lower end of the BMI scale where the difference in terms of weight loss for the two procedures is not very significant, mm -hmm. where they feel more comfortable with a lower complication profile of a sleeve. Or on kind of the total opposite end of that, patients with a very high BMI who maybe have a significant um, surgical risk, we choose a lower complication surgery so that we can optimize their surgical risk profile. So it's very individualized. I will also say that um, patients usually come in interested in one surgery versus the other based on the anatomy or what they've learned. Um, and we really like to kind of honor what their preference is as long as that there, it, there's no medical risk to favor one surgery versus the other. Um, and, and a little bit of personal um, preference in my mind is um, a sleeve gastrectomy, as I mentioned, it really works through portion control, okay. but doesn't change taste and taste perception quite as much as a gastric bypass. Um, is taste perception. That's interesting. Yeah. So, so uh, you can still taste after either surgery, but sometimes you're um, your preference for certain types of foods will change after like, like sugar, it's no longer really attractive to you. That type of thing. Correct. Okay. Or, um, something that used to be sweet is now sickingly sweet. Oh, and the reasons for that, um, are probably a whole nother radio show, but mm -hmm. changes in neural signaling in our gut microbiome and hormonal changes, but it actually changes some of our, our taste and the way foods taste to us. And some of that can work in our favor, right? Mm -hmm. If you're a, someone that craves sweets and we, and it may have the potential to change the way that that responds in your brain mm -hmm. as not as desirable, um, then that might be a better surgery for you. Well, Dr. Kendall, you are very, very popular. And I mean, the chat is lighting up right now. So I'm just going to ask one more question, okay. really based on the socioeconomic status that you talked about. And so I'm curious, like, um, what is the cost of bari bariatric surgery and how do people typically pay for this? So um, hopefully through insurance. Mm -hmm. um, many insurers uh, across the country cover bariatric surgery under those conditions that I mentioned, because they recognize that there's a health benefit to individuals to treat patients who are overweight as a chronic disease and help lower the risk of developing those other obesity-associated medical conditions. For patients that don't have insurance coverage, um, the, the cost is significant and it's really um, can be a huge barrier to moving forward with surgical care, needed surgical care. Mm -hmm. So you know, depending on where you're going across the U.S., you know, I, I think expecting things in the 20s to $30,000 range um, for bariatric surgical care, right? And that's a- I mean, Is that with life, insurance? That's without insurance. Oh, okay. That's out of pocket. Yes. No, yeah. no, with insurance. I mean, it should be whatever your, your copay and deductibles are. It should, okay. it should be cost- cost effective and, and advantageous for the patient. Right. But you have um, to meet the criteria that you mentioned, right? Correct. Yeah. Okay. And those are the criteria, you know, um, those are the criteria that was established initially by the National Institutes of Health mm -hmm. and now have been backed by evidence and then have been recently re-endorsed by our bariatric society, those the slightly lower criteria where there is a risk benefit in favor of surgery. And that's really how we make those decisions. 
Well, from the socioeconomic status, there seems to be just a real, um, seems to be a health disparity here and individual's ability to really get bariatric surgery. Because in our, in our pre-show, we talked about the process and that there's like a pre and a post diet, often liquid and those and the, and the protein powder is very expensive. So I'm wondering how does Freighter address this to really create a space of equity in allowing and supporting individuals that really need this to be able to get it? Um, you know, this is a really uh, important um, space that our program's trying to develop. It's it's one that I feel that our hospital has a passion towards trying to, to provide needed surgical care to the Milwaukee region, um, regardless of socioeconomic status. But you're right. We have developed some guidelines that can be more costly to patients. So um, first is advocacy for insurance coverage. But when we have, even when we have patients that have insurance coverage and they're not paying, you know, a lot of money out of pocket, trying to afford healthy food, protein supplements, it's expensive. And many of our patients are on reduced incomes um, or, you know, need assistance to meet their monthly needs for food. And um, protein supplements and protein shakes are part of that picture. They're, they're quite expensive. Mm -hmm. So we did a survey of the number of um, patients in our program who have food insecurity. And that means at some point, uh, someone is having a level of distress um, about where's the money gonna come from to feed myself and my family. Yeah. And our rate in our program is 38%. And, and this was really a wake up call that we have to be helping patients more than we are. So what we've done is we've set up um, a bariatric program, protein shake food bank. So patients have to do a two week liquid protein shake diet prior to surgery for safety to try to reduce the size of the liver so that we can proceed the liver less bleeding, um, less risk. Uh, but two weeks of protein supplements is, is quite a burden. And so patients can bring in um, unused, unopened protein powder or protein drinks. You know, many of our patients uh, will try a certain flavor. Oh, I don't like this banana flavor one. I never want to drink that again. And they don't know what to do with it. Um, and so they can bring it to our program and we log it. And then we're actually now screening all patients for food insecurity. It's kind of been a new initiative in the past 12 months. So we can get on our radar what are their needs? What are their barriers to care? Is this diet going to be hard for them to comply with? We wouldn't want a patient to not be able to move forward with surgery safely just because they can't afford two weeks of protein shakes. Um, and so based on that screening with the assistance of our dietitians and our bariatric nurse, we're able to supplement part of their um, protein shake diet, both pre and post-operatively to try to provide them just as good a care for any patient of a different socioeconomic status. I, I think that I, I think that's amazing that you saw this issue and you're you're almost creating this movement around it to fully support them to really democratize this, to, to, to make it available to more people. And in that in the spirit of the built environment and how it impacts you, one of uh, we're now going to turn to our audience. And one of the questions is, is how does chronic stress and trauma impact hormones and your ability to lose weight? Yeah. Great, great question. And um Chronic stress most definitely is a barrier to weight loss. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it, it depends on kind of what you're dealing with and the acuteness, the chronicity of that stress. But um, stress increases basal cortisol levels. Stress can increase your risk of insulin resistance. And both cortisol and 
insulin signaling um, are weight gain hormones. Mm -hmm. So um, I think that that is a really important part that we haven't talked about. You know, I love to talk about the biology of food intake, mm -hmm. but there are other ways to address our biology. And so health psychology is another really, really important part of a comprehensive weight loss attempt, because although you necessarily can't change your environment, um, how you're trying to handle that, the support that you have to try to lower your stress um, is really is really critical to making that weight loss intervention more successful and then durable. Um, the other part that I feel like almost always goes, well, there's two things that go hand in hand with stress. So even if stress makes it um, increases these levels, it makes it more likely that you gain weight or harder to, to burn calories. How do we handle stress with food? And um, food we may take in because we're hungry, mm -hmm. but there are lots of reasons we eat, right? Mm -hmm. And so eating for celebration or eating for boredom or eating for coping. I even say eating for tradition. Uh, tradition, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it's so much of what we do. And, and so learning some techniques in terms of mindfulness around food and trying to have, I'm not eating because I'm stressed and I'm hungry or um, I'm eating because I'm stressed and I'm nervous, right? And trying to start to separate those things in your brain and, and really limiting food intake to hunger if we can. So uh, Dr. Kendall, we have a lot of questions. I'll try and get through at least three more. Okay. Um, one of, one of our, our guests is asking, how does polycystic ovarian syndrome, P also known as PCOS, impact weight? Yeah. Um, PCOS um, is, uh, you know, a prevalent diagnosis in, um, in women, obviously, um, fertile women, and then has a large component of insulin resistance. And so I think um, that most of the association between um, overweight and PCOS and then obesity and PCOS is centered around dysregulated insulin signaling. Um, and again, insulin is supposed to be a hormone that helps us um, build. And so that's a weight, that's a weight gain hormone. Um, some of the medications that um, try to target PCOS can be slightly weight loss inducing. So metformin is getting at the heart of that insulin resistance problem. And sometimes patients can lose three to 5% total body weight loss when initiating metformin. Mm. It's really important though, when, when you have some of these medical conditions to be thinking about if I'm going to start a medication for that, is it a weight inducing medication? Is it a weight neutral medication? Or is it a medication that actually might assist me in my weight loss goals? And I think that's one of the things um, that providers often forget about is considering how is the medicine itself going to affect this weight loss journey for someone? Mm -hmm. um, the next question is, does menopause affect your metabolism? Yes. <laughs> Oh, yes, it does. So um, pregnancy affects our, like with each pregnancy, it affects our metabolism. It throws off our hormones completely. Yep. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and then for sure, when women um, become perimenopausal, which 
happens frighteningly early yeah. uh, when you can start perimenopausal. Sometimes you most definitely may notice a change in terms of more susceptible to weight gain mm -hmm. um, and a tendency to find it harder to lose weight. And that is absolutely related to a reduction in metabolism and, and some a reduction in muscle mass. Okay, because that also kind of happens during that time period, we naturally, unfortunately, lose muscle mass as we age. Mm -hmm. And muscle mass is one of the protective parts of our metabolic rate. And so I'm a big advocate for a, for a little bit at, at minimum of strength training, especially for our peri and postmenopausal women um, to try to increase muscle mass, which can boost our, our basal metabolic rate, as well as it's good for bone health. Mm -hmm. Um, one of our, our our viewers is asking, can you speak to the long-term success of weight loss drugs? Well, only from what's been published. So right now we have about two-year data, and I'd love to spend just a few minutes talking about weight loss pharmacotherapy because we are in just a brand new era of, of medications that are available, and I think a much better safety profile than what was being offered 20, 30, 40 years ago. Mm -hmm. The problem with those drugs is they were sympathomimetics. So usually designed to stimulate your metabolism and drive your heart sympathomimetics. Okay. <laughs> Got it. Yes. Yeah. They're, they're stimulants. Okay. Yes. They're stimulants. okay. And so that carried cardiovascular risk with it. Um, these newer generation medications that are available, primary oh, semaglutide's the, the generic name. There's several different formulations of that is based off of the gut hormone that provides fullness. And so, um, most recently, there was a big New England Journal publication that came out with higher dose semaglutide, two-year follow-up, really significant weight loss for many people on this. Not quite meeting the success rate of bariatric surgery, mm -hmm. um, but more than we've seen from a weight loss medication thus far. The mm -hmm. problem, or at least the caveat that people need to be aware, is remember my guiding principle, what got you there is what keeps you there. Yeah. So you cannot start a weight loss medication and, and reasonably think you can stop a weight loss medication and maintain the weight loss because that weight loss medicine is providing satiety, is providing fullness, right? And so when you pull that off, that counter mechanism to try to regain weight that our body has with metabolic adaptation is going to take over. Mm -hmm. And so... Most people in obesity medicine, obesity surgery feel like if you're going to start a weight loss medication, we're probably going to need to be starting it as a lifelong treatment. And okay. we don't have lifelong data yet. So we've got a couple of year data, really good results. But I think this is chronic medications at this point. Right. And so as you, as you talk about medications, um, pharma versus surgery from our prior conversations, the way this is occurring to me is that bariatrics is probably one of the more permanent solutions where it restricts and suppre not suppresses, but it restricts and, and, and provides fullness longer or sooner. Well, um, it's doing it every meal. Okay. And it does it through, you know, like a medication right now is usually a single hormone agent. There's a new one out that's a dual, but we think bariatric surgery works in multiple different mechanisms. So gut hormones, suppression of hunger, modulating the gut microbiome, bile acids, neural, I could go on and on, multiple mm -hmm. different mechanisms that's there every meal. So that's, but the same concept, right? But it's permanent. It's there from the minute you start your weight loss journey 
to when your weight loss stabilizes till as you go on. And I think that's why we see the success of weight loss surgery compared to dieting. It's not that you don't have metabolic adaptation to bariatric surgery, although the literature suggests maybe with a gastric bypass, it's not as pronounced as what you'd expect with dieting, but that the tool is there every meal, every day. Mm -hmm. Um, how does a, some, so someone who's struggled with anorexia and has a history of anorexia, how does that affect your metabolic rate? Um, so, you know, both anorexia and, um, bulimia, these kind of food related mental health disorders, um, can certainly impact your metabolic rate. And, um, if we look at the question specifically related to anorexia, um, when someone is in a prolonged starvation state, mm -hmm. the body responds to that. Okay. And the body responds by suppressing your metabolic rate. Now I'm not aware of the literature, although it may be out there of if someone has treated anorexia, how, what is their metabolic adaptation look like when you get to a more healthy um, fat storage point, right? So in obesity, the body seems to want to defend an abnormally high level of energy stores, adipose tissue. Anorexia being on, on the other spectrum of that, the body is trying to increase your energy stores by completely suppressing your metabolic rate. But I don't know if there's a healthy ceiling on that, or if like we see with patients who are have had significant overweight or obesity, lost weight and the weight regained, that anorexics suffer a similar prolonged metabolic adaptation where their metabolic rate is always unfortunately suppressed beyond what you'd expect for someone of that body weight. Mm -hmm. uh Dr. Ken, I feel like we could have gone a full hour together. Um, I am going to co combine these last two questions, which is what do you recommend is the safest and most sustainable way to lose weight? And what do you think about Weight Watchers? <laughs> Not about Weight Watchers oh, out yeah, there. Because yeah. other I, hope, I hope people stay on because um, these are such good questions. And, and I want to, um, you know, I'm not promoting any kind of specific weight loss um, journey or mechanism. I only am trying to present what's available in the literature. And what we see in the literature is that um, most studies of weight loss, if we're excluding surgery, excluding medications, um, have marginal kind of disappointing results long-term. Oh. But if you look at the individuals, there are usually a group of people who were in that weight loss trial who did exceptionally well, and maybe a group that didn't lose at all, right? And you kind of average out not so impressive and so when someone asks like what's the best weight loss strategy i would turn to that person and say hey you really have to look at your journey okay can you identify a specific type of lifestyle or diet that has worked well for you in the past and what were the principles of that because i really do think most of us have an ideal macronutrient composition we do have an ideal way a lifestyle habit that's going to work for us so me prescribing you know significantly low calorie high protein that just may not synergize with someone's physiology so so i would say what has worked well in the past and, and what are the components that have worked well in the past and then the other part of that is the sustainability. And I think this is, again, I'm like a you know revolving door with this, but mm -hmm. that's the part that gets missed, right? So a cabbage soup diet has no sustainability. Mm -hmm. Weight Watchers 
has great sustainability for some individuals. If they like, you know, um, doing the point system, if they like having meal replacements that works for them, I, I think that's, it's a great option. There are other people who do much better, you know, doing other types of diet. So it's finding what works for you and then recognizing that this is not an intervention that I'm trying to do to lose 15 pounds and then I'm going to do something else. This has to be the intervention permanently. Mm -hmm. And so there are a couple principles, I think, when we think about permanent lifestyle changes that I will kind of close or recommend on. Number one, try not to drink calories. They're, they're wasted calories. It, it takes, like the sugary, sugary coffee drinks. And all, and, and, all you know, uh, if you're trying to lose weight, okay, like this is, you know, these aren't health recommendations. These are weight loss recommendations. If you're trying to lose weight, don't waste your calories and liquids. They don't provide the same amount of fullness. And it's like such low hanging fruit to cut off. So that might be juice or sugary coffee drinks, alcohol. Like they're Does just also account for like the protein drinks as well. Or are those exceptions? Well, they're, they're a little bit of an exception. They don't provide as much fullness, but those are kind of meal replacements. Okay. So, um, so try not to drink, you know, and, and it's, if you're doing it as a meal rather than as something else, I think it's a little bit different too. Track. Tracking um, is your accountability. And it's really hard for you to know what got you there if if you're not keeping track of it, right? So I need to maintain what, but I don't know how many calories I'm taking in and I don't know what my macronutrients are. So I think tracking is really, really useful. And you have to be like brutally honest with the tracking. You gotta know where those calories are coming from. And then in terms of activity, um, this is the one where I, I feel like a lot of people get caught is they will go into a very, very intense exercise program to try to lose weight. Yeah but you have to maintain that, right? That's what we learned from the biggest loser study. If, yeah. if you're going to maintain that weight loss, if you're going to exercise two hours a day, um, you got to keep doing that. And is that really realistic for you? So find an activity for cardiovascular health. That's a little bit aerobic that you enjoy and a little bit of strength training for muscle mass. And, and those are kind of my activity recommendations, but it needs to be something that you're thinking about for the long-term, not the short-term. Yeah. So that's, that, that, that's awesome. So if you think about losing weight mm -hmm. first, don't drink your calories. Don't drink your calories. Um, then let's be physically active. And the third is Tracking. Track, Tracking. Track, Account track. accountability, right? Because what that provides you, especially if you're doing calorie counting is um, if you're losing a pound a week and you're keeping track of your calories in and your activity, you know, Mm -hmm. what it's taking to get you there in the shifts that are happening with your Correct, body. Right. And if, yeah. and it allows you to kind of take power over that. Right. So if it's, Hmm, I thought I reduced my calories as much and I'm not losing, mm -hmm. you know, you, you can go down a little bit further. I do recommend people try to avoid significant hunger while dieting and using some of those other modalities to increase fullness, like high protein and fiber. Um, because usually when you're feeling really, really hungry with dieting, it's not going to be sustainable. Yeah. And, and you know that you're getting that metabolic adaptation because your body's really fighting that. Yeah. Well, wow. And Dr. Kendall, you shared so much with us today. Thank you so much for your time. We appreciate you for taking the time to educate us on the science behind losing weight. Um, so thank you for that. And for those of you out there in internet land, if we didn't get to your question, I'm so sorry. We encourage you to please send us 
uh, an email at conversations at mcw.edu. I hope you all enjoyed this virtual session of Coffee Conversations with Scientists, and we look forward to seeing you next time. Thank you. Have a good day. The Medical College of Wisconsin's Coffee Conversations with Scientists is sponsored by the Advancing a Healthier Wisconsin Endowment. Coffee Conversations with Scientists occur monthly as Facebook Live events and are produced by the Medical College of Wisconsin. We hope you join us next month for another virtual coffee break and a conversation with a scientist.